Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jordan Osserman, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm speaking to you from my home in London, where it is a bright and chilly day, and general election fever is beginning to sweep the nation. Uh, I think these are great circumstances to be speaking with Ian Parker, the prolific leftist and Lacanian theorist and analyst who is dialing in from Manchester. Is that right, Ian? That's right. Here I am in cold Manchester. Excellent. Uh, So we're here to talk about his latest book, Psychoanalysis, Clinic and Context, Subjectivity, History and Autobiography, which was just published by Rutledge this year. Uh, And before we begin, just a few words about Ian. Um, Ian Parker is a psychoanalyst in Manchester, uh, honorary professorial research fellow at the University of Manchester, secretary of the Manchester Psychoanalytic Matrix, and president of the College of Psychoanalysts UK. He has held visiting professorial posts in Belgium, Brazil, South Africa, Spain, and the UK. His books on psychoanalysis include Slavoj Žižek, A Critical Introduction, published by Pluto in 2004, and Lacanian Psychoanalysis, Revolutions in Subjectivity, published by Rutledge in 2011. And his most recent book, uh, before the one we're going to speak about, was Revolutionary Keywords for a New Left, and that was published by Zero in 2017. So thank you so much for joining us, Ian. Pleasure to be here. Great. So um, psychoanalysis, clinic, and context, subjectivity, history, and autobiography. Um, I have to admit, I think the content of this book was way more interesting than the title. Um, So uh, how did this title come about, and, and how did this book come about? Yeah, the title comes about from having to uh, obey uh, symbolic orders uh, and contexts. Uh, Routledge want keywords for their book titles. They want things that can be easily searchable. And so more interesting titles had to be shelved. And <laughs> we had to arrive at this one, were which there, is were there uh, any something kind that of tries to favorite cram you... in any of the... Yeah. Yeah, was there a favorite that you had to turn down then? Uh, psychoanalysis isn't what you think was the title I was working to right until uh, almost the last moment. Cause I, and I talk about that in the, the introduction to the book, but uh, that seems to capture what is going on here. That the discipline of psychology, uh, psychoanalysis isn't what you think. And psychoanalysis itself is not about what you think, but that, uh, that didn't go down well with Routledge. They they wanted the keywords. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, I think, um, yeah, so it's a kind of autobiographical book as well as a sort of, uh, I don't know, exploration of, I suppose, some of the ideas that you put forward uh, throughout your career. So what, what brought it about? What motivated you to write it, um, and particularly in this style? Well, I suppose one of the aspects of psychoanalysis is signaled in the last word of the subtitle, which is autobiography, but it's a kind of 
autobiography that's very different from the kind of crafted narratives that that you read uh, in 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 books usually autobiography and psychoanalysis is rather a way of disturbing the memories that you have and deconstructing them if you like giving you an opportunity to hear what you're saying in the presence of another and to reflect on the ways in which those terms and phrases those those signifiers lock you in place in a certain kind of way and so i suppose what i wanted to do was to open up some of the different strands of psychoanalysis that have been important to me as i've trained as an analyst and that i've encountered in the different psychoanalytic traditions um and to to do something with that to open it up so that other people could see how the discipline of psychoanalysis works how it works as a practice and also to think about what it might mean for someone who's encountering it and thinking about themselves and in the process i have to say that uh the book ends up more like a classic autobiography than it does a psychoanalytic session um it has to be ordered linear and uh, to make sense to the reader and so i suppose in that sense i have to be upfront and say that that i betrayed psychoanalysis in the process of writing it but what can you do hmm. and um is this is this the first time that you've done a kind of autobiographical work like this i'm curious what it was like for you kind of moving into this style yeah i have done something like it before in the book called psychoanalytic mythologies which was published about 10 years ago um and in that book i had little pieces that were about 1000 1500 words which were what i had in mind as i was writing that psychoanalytic mythologies was roland barth's classic book mythologies where i was taking aspects of popular culture that i was immersed in and tried to think about the link between subjectivity and these cultural processes so the book is modeled on the bart book it has a series of little essays and then it has a theoretical essay at the end which tries to justify what i was doing in the book so i had some some practice there thinking autobiographically about what psychoanalysis was doing to me the way that psychoanalysis was entering into my life the way that it affected how i framed things and how i responded to things and i'm writing parallel to this psychoanalysis book another book specifically about the discipline of psychology which i think is is very different i, I was trained as an academic psychologist first and that book about psychology will be published by routledge next year uh, but but as things turned out through the process of writing this book on psychoanalysis was the one that that has hit the shelves first mm. yeah and um let's let's look at chapter 1 the the very first um the opening line you begin um with a quite interesting opener you say there are many good reasons to steer clear of psychoanalysis the first four chapters of this book explore some of those reasons and uh the titles of those chapters are uh science avoiding analysis of the mind sex avoiding analysis of the body schisms avoiding analytic politics and teaching avoiding analytic practice Um so it's quite an interesting way to open this book talking about all of the reasons 
why one should steer clear of psychoanalysis or perhaps why um, you wanted to steer clear of psychoanalysis. So um, how, wh what are you trying to do in those, in those opening chapters and, and how did you kind of come up with this idea as a structure? Well, I'm trying to address something that, that is really important in the way that we try to work with psychoanalysis in the clinic, which is to address the very strong resistance that people have to speaking about themselves personally in that private space and the suspicion that many people have that what they say will be framed theoretically in a way that is alien to their own experience. Um, and that, that suspicion is well-founded, and it's especially well-founded for people who come from the left or feminist politics, people who uh, are attentive to power relations, structuring our experience in society. Um, and I wanted to address those kind of questions, the resistances to psychoanalysis that are well-founded, and to do that by connecting that with my own experience of encountering psychoanalysis, which indeed had that as a first phase, as a first phase of my encounter with psychoanalysis, wanting to keep away from it because it seemed to be a fake science. It seemed to be reductive, reducing things to sex, sexuality in a, in a, in a crass way, in a normative way. And it seemed to be a liability when you were trying to teach other students, students about subjectivity, uh, for me, in the context of, uh, of psychology courses. Whenever I raised the question of psychoanalysis, I would hear these objections and they would ring true for me. And I could especially resonate with those, those uh, objections because I could see people inside psychology and psychotherapy being dissatisfied with those disciplines and turning to psychoanalysis and then becoming evangelists, evangelists for psychoanalysis and unable to reflect on the problems with it. So I think I, I wanted to lead people into psychoanalysis by addressing those resistances and taking them seriously. Mm. Yeah, you have this quote in the book. Uh, you say, psychoanalytic discourse operated as a trap. Once one started to speak it, one began to be inducted into a psychoanalytic vision of the world and the unconscious subjects who inhabited it. Uh, and what I find really interesting is, of course, as the book um, moves along, um, you yourself um, you know, talk about how you become much more engaged in um, psychoanalysis and, um, to a certain extent, participate in this kind of psychoanalytic discourse, but always with an eye towards, I suppose, thinking critically about it. So how did you, um, I suppose, uh, answer your objections to psychoanalysis enough, the ones that you talk about in the first four chapters, um, in order to, to pursue it? Or basically, um, how, how did you become eventually an advocate for psychoanalysis? Well, I suppose one of the, one of the ways in for me was through the connection with politics, it was actually, uh, especially the, the contradiction between psychoanalysis and radical politics that kept me away from it. And that's, that's what I was talking about a moment ago. But I could see around me uh, different strands of radical politics connecting with psychoanalysis. And some of the ways that they connected with psychoanalysis seemed to me interesting, 
seemed to me uh, respectful of the problems and seemed to be trying to grapple with those problems. And I suppose that I, I followed a, a journey that many have taken into psychoanalysis from the left or from feminism. Uh, but I wanted to keep grounded in my own politics, which I speak as a Marxist. It's not an identity statement, but it's important to to, to what I do in my politics, Um, to stay grounded in that and to think about what I was doing in psychoanalysis from that standpoint at the same time. Hmm. So uh, eventually, um, it seems... uh from the book, you you become a Lacanian, but you spend a bit of time talking about these different um, politically involved psychoanalytic worlds in the UK. And um, I was interested in uh, your discussion around um, kind of uh, Kleinian leftists. Uh, I just spoke uh, a few weeks ago uh, on this podcast with Amy Allen, um, who's been writing about uh, critical theory in Klein. So what what did you encounter um, in the uh, kind of leftist psychoanalytic political world when you first began to explore it? Um, what, what were the Kleinians doing and um, what, what did you find interesting about them But and, and why did you ultimately kind of move in a different direction? Well, the Kleinians direction? were trying to engage not only with the theoretical perspectives of Melanie Klein and the history of British psychoanalysis, but also to engage with the institutions. And it was that institutional engagement that was that was crucial to the way that they left-wing Kleinians operated, the way that they operated, uh, trying to in, uh, produce a political intervention into the institution of psychoanalysis. Uh, there was, of course, the immediate theoretical link between the Lacanian stuff and feminist theory through film theory and screen theory uh, in the academic world. But the Kleinians were doing something very interesting and very different. And my first encounter with that was through the psychoanalysis and the public sphere conferences. Uh, I think the first one was in 1987. And they they were conferences organized by Bob Young, uh, who died a few months ago. But Bob Young was one of the key figures in setting up these psychoanalysis in the public sphere conferences and uh, setting up the journal Free Associations, which is still going today as an online journal. But, but then, then it was published as a, uh, as a printed journal. And in the psychoanalysis in the public sphere conferences, I heard uh, people like Joel Covell, from the states, uh, Victor Wolfenstein, uh, from the states as well, um, and people like Carl Filio, uh, who's uh, who, who then ended up at Essex University, uh, Bob Young, of course, who'd gone into Kleinian psychoanalysis and become a, a, I would say, an evangelist for 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 Kleinian psychoanalysis, but but people who wanted to remain true to their radical politics and the. The, the starting point of the intervention of the psychoanalysis and public sphere conferences and of Free Associations Journal was that the premise was that British psychoanalysis and its institutions were to the left of centre or left. And it was possible to intervene in those institutions to talk to those psychoanalysts and to bring them further to the left. 
to think about radical politics. Uh, so it seemed to be a, a, a very interesting project. And I suppose that was one of the first ways that I really became hooked into psychoanalysis and thinking of it as a political project in its own right. Now, towards the end of the book, uh, I start to question that assumption. Um, and I deal in the last four chapters of the book with limitations of psychoanalysis. But 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 this was my way in to think about how we could actually do something with it as a practice as well as a theory. Mm. Although, I mean, you do seem to a bit skeptical about how progressive the psychoanalytic institutions in the UK really are. I mean, in the in the chapter, in one of the chapters, you um, you open with a quote from the Kleinian uh, Mike Rustin, who um, I'd, I'd taken a few seminars with him at Birkbeck, and uh, you open with him talking about his wife and how it kind of immediately sets up a certain kind of heteronormative frame that you're you know kind of pushing against. Yeah, that's that was very tricky to open the uh, open the chapter in that way. I I I, I don't want to make a, a point about Mike Rustin's heteronormativity, but I want to make a point about the way that that kind of frame can appear in psychoanalytic institutions so easily without people being even aware of it or intending it to operate in that kind of way. Um, and I know that Mike would would distance himself from that kind of that kind of political stance and uh, what what was so interesting to me was was how that would become one of the frames that would operate through the psychoanalysis and public sphere conference and then i traced through the ways in which one of the key debates in that first conference was the debate about lesbians and gay men training in the in the british psychoanalytic institutions in the institute of psychoanalysis uh, in in the work of Joanna Ryan and Noreen O'Connor, uh, and the, the way in which many of the analysts uh, were unable to take that on board in the conference, were unable to see that it was important. For me, I want to be upfront in the book that I'm a Marxist, um, but from that specific point, I want to make a general point about the way that our political stances always enter into our practice and into our theoretical work, even, even when they seem invisible to us. And I think for so many psychoanalysts and psychoanalytic psychotherapists, they like to think that they are neutral and non-political, but of course they have their own, they have their own views of the world outside the clinic. Um. Can you tell us a bit about group analysis? This was another kind of interesting theme in the book. Um, you were kind of considering doing a training in group analysis and were involved in a group group analytic groups, as it were. That's right. Uh, I mean, my first clinical encounter with psychoanalysis was through some kind of object relations frame, Winnicott uh, being the most important figure that was in the local National Health Service. Um, but the first uh, step step into training was the was the group analysis um, introductory course in Manchester, uh, which was a prerequisite for going on to train as a group analyst, but also a prerequisite in Manchester 
for training with the Northwest Institute for Dynamic Psychotherapy, which was the the main psychoanalytic training, in fact, the only psychoanalytic training organization in Manchester. And so that introductory course was an opportunity to meet people who who came from different traditions, not only from group analysis, but but we met them in the groups. We met them within the group frame. Um, and many, many activists uh, went from their activism into therapy and then trained as therapists through group analysis, precisely because group analysis works at the level of the group rather than at the level of the individual. And they saw that as being a more immediate connection with the kind of progressive, political, um, let's say prefigurative work that they were trying to do in their politics, that is trying to do a kind of politics that, that prefigured or anticipated the kind of social relationships they wanted to see as, as the future basis of a, of a socialist society. To do that inside the group itself as, as a democratic forum in which people uh, learn to speak openly to others about their experiences, to resonate with others' experiences, to identify and to and to think of themselves as part of a collective as well as an individual. Um, and so group analysis, I think, is is an interesting political project in its own right, as well as a psychoanalytic theoretical project. The key uh, social theorist in group analysis, Norbert uh, Elias, uh, was loosely connected with the Frankfurt School um, and, and came over around the same time as... Uh, as, as Fuchs, who set up the group analytic trainings in Britain. Uh, so there's, this, there's some kind of um, attention to the nature of society, as there is an attention to the nature of individual subjectivity. And that, that's something that, that, that attracted me. I, I, when I've talked about this, this, this work, um, I talked about... Uh, stuff in some of the chapters to uh, to a course uh, a few years ago uh, at the, the response at the end of the course was well, I still don't understand why did why you didn't train to be a group analyst um, yeah that that was exactly what I was going to ask you because I think the, the reasons you outline in the book some of them are quite happenstance about your partner training and the institute saying you should you know spend some time you should not be in the same training cohort this and that but I was wondering if there's are there more kind of theoretical reasons why you decided not to train as a, as a group analyst uh, yeah I I suppose um, one thing at the back of my mind as I was involved in these groups, uh, was the the warnings about idealizing groups or communities that are around in social work or psychology uh, in which the normative structure of the group takes over and becomes most important uh, and it seemed to me that uh, in group analysis we had an attempt to make a connection with the social realm but this attempt was always hobbled by some of the theoretical premises of group analysis. So uh, Fuchs, for example, says that uh, group analysis is ego training in action. And there were very close connections between the key group analysts in Britain and the Anafreudian tradition of psychoanalysis in, in, the, in the International Psychoanalytical Association. 
Um, so I wanted theoretically to work with an approach that would disconnect psychoanalysis from its uh, link with neuroscience, with biologically wired in ages and stages of development, with that kind of thing. And I think that's the kind of thing that you can see in Anna Freud's work. You can see it in uh, uh, Melanie Klein's work. Uh, you can also see it to an extent in the uh, work of John Bowlby and, and Donald Winnicott. Uh, to find an approach that would attend to the nature of history. And the approach I found, of course, was that of Lacan. Uh, Lacan was concerned with our relation to language. And that seemed to me to open up a way of thinking about historical transformation, because as language changes, so our experience of our subjectivity changes. And so we have a possibility there. Paradoxically, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, because it's focused on the individual, we're still located in the individual context of the clinic. But we theoretically, we have a, a very interesting and I think politically productive attempt to think about how we can transform ourselves as we transform culture and and, and, and think through and work with the political aspects of that. So there are sort of group implications, uh, even to a one-on-one -on -one Lacanian analysis. Yes, you can think of the uh, the relationship between the analyst and the analysand in the clinic as being like a little group, uh, and that that little group of two people is always surrounded by other figures, whether they're the receptionist in the clinic, uh, whether they're the other figures in the analysand's life, whether the other um, figures in the analyst's life, including their own supervisor and their training organization, that you can conceptualize this this pair, this 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 two people meeting together in the confined space of the clinic, you can conceptualize it in group terms. And the other side of the of that is that uh, in group analysis you have different traditions of psychoanalysis working. Um, ranging from Jungian analysis to Lacanian analysis, and there are there are Lacanian analysts in in other countries who are working as group analysts as well. So I thought that maybe I could return to the question of groups later on. That's not something that I've done yet, but that, but that there would way there were ways into that that I could I could take that route through Lacan instead. Yeah, you mentioned that Lacan was actually impressed with um, Beyond's uh, work in, uh, was it the Northfield Hospital? Yes, that's right. So, so do you think a kind of Lacanian group analysis is um, possible? I don't know. Uh, Lacan's discussions of the Northfield experiment and of Beyond and Co., uh, and he doesn't talk about Fuchs, by the way. He, he, he talks about Beyond and Rickman in his, his paper on uh, a British English psychiatry in the war. Uh, Lacan is interested in the uh, esprit de corps of the, of the group, the ways in which they can be, the members of the group can be drawn together to, to devote themselves to the task. And actually it seems to me still quite normative in its, uh, 
in the direction of travel of the narrative that that, that Lacan is is giving us in that paper. Uh, the other the other places where Lacanians have been using group analysis uh, that I know about have been in Argentina. Uh, I don't think I talk about this in the book, but me and Erica Berman, who trained as a group analyst, uh, we visited uh, the main asylum in Buenos Aires, where we spoke to Lacanians who were working in groups. Now, what they were doing were was encouraging people in the groups who were patients in the asylum to think about the signifiers that anchored them in their lives, in their identities as being patients, as being psychiatric patients, and to, to loosen that anchoring a bit, to think about other signifiers that they may use. Now, uh, it, it seems to me that that work in the groups was still working one by one with individuals in the group, necessarily so. Uh, so I, I think I don't know the answer to your question. I really don't know. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think you say one of the things you like about Fuchs is how he doesn't offer interpretations of the group, but acts as a kind of co-traveler uh, with the members of the of the group. Is is that right? Because I um I've been reading uh, Beyond recently for uh, my training with the site for contemporary psychoanalysis, and that's really struck me as the kind of way that he kind of treats, I suppose, the group as a patient as opposed to the individuals. Yes, whole group interpretations. Yes, like the group is angry or the group is frightened, this kind of thing. Yes. And and you seem to think that maybe a more working with each individual in a one-on-way group, one-on-one way within the group has, has some kind of advantage or, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, yes. One of the one of the things that I, I I like very much about Lacanian psychoanalysis is its emphasis on the singularity of the subject, and I think that's something that you can get to in a one-on-one work in the clinic. It's uh, it's possible to do that in a more mediated way uh, through group work, yes, but in the clinic with one person there. That you're speaking to when you're an analysand, you're having a focus on on you and your own signifiers. So, I mean, I suppose we've been touching on this um, uh, so far throughout, but um, I guess uh, it resonated with me um, the your kind of pathway towards doing a clinical training um, because uh, I suppose. Um, I feel that some aspects of it are similar to my own experience in terms of coming to psychoanalytic thought more through the world of politics and critical theory, um, and then kind of um, alongside it, having an interest in the clinic and, and eventually deciding to pursue a training. So um, I suppose I'm curious, um, why did you ultimately decide that you wanted to to practice as a clinician and train to become a clinician? I find it fascinating theoretically. And I find work in the clinic fascinating at a practical level, engaging with the subjectivity of someone who is so different from me. And I think the trap in psychoanalysis is always that the analyst will identify with the patient and identify with the analysand 
in some way. And maybe that's why Lacan himself was so scornful about the tradition of eco-psychology in the International Psychoanalytical Association, um, scornful of the ways in which they, some of them seem to assume that the end of analysis would be the point when the analysand identified with the analyst. And I think that, that that danger, of course, is explored in different traditions of psychoanalysis through the notion of counter-transference uh, to try and to, to work with that and work through it and work against it. Um, so what I have in mind as I'm listening to an analysand is how different their world is from my world. To think all the time about that difference, and I find that 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 difference fascinating. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to listen to people who have such different takes on the world. Now, there's a danger, of course, again, that people will seek out analysts who are similar in some way to themselves, whether that's uh, goes around gender matching or pol- politics matching. Um, and that that increases the danger of identification in the analysis. Uh, but but what I do enjoy about psychoanalysis is is that encounter with a quite different subjectivity, uh, and that's something that kind of mirrors in a in a in a peculiar way the experience that we have as analysands when we go into analysis. Um, become an analysand. We're speaking about ourselves in a way that we've never spoken before to another person. We're speaking to someone who isn't going to humor us. We're speaking to someone who isn't going to give us advice, who isn't going to contradict us in a, in, in a harsh way where we're pitted against a kind of wall wall of disbelief. For the analyst, you're um. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. The, yeah. Just, just, just let me finish this. The, 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 for the analyst, sure, there's, sure. there's a kind of the reverse side of that is that uh, we are listening to someone in a way that we never listen to someone in the rest of the world. That's it. Mm. You're you're surprisingly candid in the book um, that during your training you're kind of cross that you're required to be in personal analysis yourself. I'm cross. Well, it seems that way that you're that you're kind of unhappy. Um, you say, and uh, at at the time or at the very beginning of your training, that you're that part of the requirement to train is is to be in a personal analysis. I'm I'm curious what your feelings were about that then, and and kind of how you might think about it now. Yeah, uh, I I think because it was a requirement, because it was uh, then I felt it as an imposition. I felt it as a task that I had to go through. Uh, that uh, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to be in analysis, but because I had to be in analysis, and it was something I had to do was to work through that contradiction, to work through that desire. To be an analysis, which I found very fruitful, uh, to distinguish that desire to be an analysis from the requirement to be in analysis, and that's that's something that that we deal with in our institutions, where 
say students are advised to go and see the counseling service and 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 experience that sometimes as as a requirement that that, that you know that there's an imposition or even more so of course uh in prisons where um prisoners are sometimes required to undergo therapy of one kind or another and it, it's always difficult to um to distinguish the requirement from the demand the requirement to be in analysis from the from the uh, from your own wish to, to, to do it for yourself mm, yeah i mean i there was just uh it strikes me i just read a case that was published by the the UKCP, the UK um, Counseling and Psychotherapy Organization, about um, an analyst who was um, uh, accused of, of kind of inappropriate conduct. And one of the sort of sanctions was um, requiring him to attend further therapy with a UKCP certifi- certified therapist, which I thought was quite an interesting sort of yes. pyramid scheme yes. in a way. Yes. Uh, for the for the organization that represents therapists to then require one of its therapists to see yeah, another one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and although I have harsh things to say about the Kleinians uh, early on in the book that I encounter through free associations and psychoanalysis in the public sphere, I equally have harsh things to say about the Lacanian organizations. Uh, it seems to me that uh, we would expect when we first think about it that psychoanalysts should be more clarified, open, transparent, generous people when they're in organizations. But actually, psychoanalytic organizations are as bad as any other organization, bedeviled by conflicts and rivalries and jealousies and weird pathological processes. Uh, so I want to, to to explore how I encountered that and it's because we all have to deal with that. There's no way around that. We're not going to we're not going to find a, a paradise where psychoanalysis has been completely worked through and then we're inducted into it and become perfect individuals. Yeah, could you say a bit more about that? Because you describe in the book some of the rivalries among all of the psychoanalytic organizations in the UK, but also particularly among the Lacanian ones and the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research, where you trained, but also the new Lacanian school, where you uh, remain a member. Yeah, I'm that, still a member correct? of the London Society of the New Lacanian School. Uh, there's a there's a second step that you have to take to be a member of the New Lacanian School, which I haven't taken. So I'm in the London Society of the New Lacanian mm-hmm. School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how have you navigated um, those different tensions and differences while still remaining involved in, in in these different Lacanian schools? I think because I want to know how they work from the inside. And I have to admit to an element of voyeurism in my encounter with psychoanalysis. Um, I, I'm upfront about that in the book as well, that I want to know how these things work from the inside. And being a member of the London Society and a member of CIFAR is an opportunity to be inside those different life worlds and to see, to experience different vantage points on psychoanalysis. Uh, I was at the Free Associations Conference uh, last month uh, in September, end of September, 
at the Freud Museum, uh, where there were mainly Kleinians there. And I value that as well. I, I, I see that as, as part of the uh, disparate, the diverse, the contradictory ways of thinking about psychoanalysis. And I, 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 I think I would be lost. No, lost isn't the right word. Yes, but maybe lost is the right word. I will be lost to psychoanalysis, uh, trapped in the grid of psychoanalysis, if I only followed one path inside it. I think one of the ways of being attentive to the limitations of psychoanalysis is talking to people who take different perspectives on it and to always have at the forefront of my mind that it is a contradictory practice. Mm. You have a whole chapter on diagnosis where you kind of take on or, or question um, the sort of Lacanian orthodoxy about the sort of diagnostic categories that they employ of um, neurosis, psychosis, and, and perversion. Could you, could you say a bit more about that and your kind of journey through um, thinking about these categories? Yes, there's a connection here with my suspicion of psychiatry. Um, one of the messages of the book, something I try to make very clear, is that psychoanalysis is very different from psychology, that it's also very different from medical psychiatry. And there's a danger that shadows psychoanalysis through its practice up to the present day which is that it could be absorbed and reframed either by psychology and turned into some kind of cognitive behavioral treatment, a moralizing practice that tells people how they should adapt to society and how they should think about themselves, or how it could be incorporated into psychiatry. And the diagnostic categories seem to be one instance where psychoanalysis is very susceptible to being incorporated back into psychiatry. I have to remember that many of the leading psychoanalysts were psychiatrists, as was Lacan himself, trained as a psychiatrist. Um, and the that threefold division into um, neurosis, psychosis and perversion, I think is is especially susceptible to being turned back into a psychiatric categorical system. It's especially susceptible to that when people speak about their patients, and they use the word patient instead of analysant. That's the first sign that the trap is 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 opening to them and closing around them. Uh, and to speak about this or that person as being a neurotic or being a pervert or being a psychotic. That's the second stage in the trap. And the third stage in the trap is where they pass that diagnosis on to another professional. It might be a professional in a case presentation, uh, listening to them when they're talking about one of their cases, or it might be a professional in a service where they're passing on a referral to a colleague and to describe someone as being a neurotic, a pervert or a psychotic. So the, the, uh, the, the, the category, which is uh, a useful conceptual category, becomes turned into a label, becomes rarefied, becomes attached to an individual. Uh, I do find in my own practice that that threefold division 
useful in orienting the way in which I think about what I'm hearing. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, I think, more important for me to anchor my own place than it is for the person who's speaking. I would never tell an analysand that I thought they were neurotic, psychotic, or pervert. Um, but I can think about the ways in which their speech corresponds to the to the ways in which those categories are spoken about in psychoanalysis. And that helps me to orient my own listening. That's where it's important. But I want to be very clear. I hope I've been clear in the book that uh, we should not slide from that into treating them as psychiatric categories. I mean, uh, something I've observed and some of my friends and colleagues have also pointed out is that when these categories um, emerge in a kind of clinical case presentation, it seems as if the whole, oftentimes that the, the whole conversation just gets sidetracked into, into you know, deciding upon one of these diagnoses rather than uh, paying attention to what actually happened between the analysis yeah, and exactly. the analyst. Uh, one thing I, I learned through my supervision over and over again is that the assumptions that I might make about clinical structure are susceptible to change. That it could be useful at one point in the analysis to to think about someone as being in some ways psychotic in the way that they're speaking, but but then things open up and 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 the they, they speak as a neurotic, as a as a very obsessional person, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to press too much on it, but just one one more question in that vein is: um, I suppose there's this kind of advice that if you're working with someone who is uh, quote unquote psychotic, that um, there's a there's a danger of kind of triggering a latent psychosis, and that kind of uh, doing this type of work to do with gathering or trying to encourage the emergence of the unconscious that you might do with a neurotic might be in some way dangerous with with a psychotic. What, what do you think about that particular kind of yeah, line of thought? Yeah, I, I do find that useful. I, I, that's something there in the way that I approach uh, my own analysands and listen to them and think about the... But I would frame it in a different way. I would think of it in terms of the um, the distress that might be opened up for someone who is unable to cope with the process of free associating without seeing the person that they're speaking to. Uh, I would I would try and reframe that what you've just said about triggering a latent psychotic structure. I would try and reframe it in terms of the the distress and anxiety that would be produced for someone. And as I listen to that, yes, I'm thinking in those classical psychoanalytic categorical terms. Yes, I'm thinking in those terms that you've just described. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, in this kind of last part of the interview about the kind of international dimension to this book. That's a sort of interesting um, part towards the end. Uh, you talk about your travels to Brazil, to Japan, um, to Russia. Uh, so. Um, yeah, what what is the role of uh, visiting academics and analysts around the world um, in in this book and in your own kind of formation? Already, all, always from the beginning, the the psychoanalysis that that 
we encounter is in some way, uh, what word could we use? Alien, other, foreign, outside. Uh, there's an international dimension to psychoanalysis embedded in its history. Uh, when we encounter Freud, we're encountering Freud, who was working in Vienna. We're encountering uh, a psychoanalytic tradition that developed in continental Europe. And that's always important, I think, in thinking about how it works as, uh, I like to use the Scottish term out with, uh, that it's, it's about inside and outside at the same time. It's at the edge, out with the dominant culture um, because of its history as being another from another culture. And when we encounter Lacan, we encounter something of the same thing from a French context where we need to learn something about those French debates in order to appreciate what Lacan is doing and what he's saying about psychoanalysis. That's one, that's one, uh, one aspect of, of, of my encounter with psychoanalysis. The other, another is that, uh, because I have been an academic, uh, my academic work has always been linked with encounters with colleagues in other parts of the world and learning about different traditions in psychology and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and politics for that for that matter. And uh, I, I, I make the joke in, in the book that I recognise something about the psychoanalytic institutions because I come from a Marxist background, uh, there is there is some uh, peculiar similarity between between Trotskyists and Lacanians. Is that when you have two, uh, you set up an organisation. When you have three, you set up an international, and when you have four, you have a split. Uh, so I I I, I enjoy uh, the diversity and contradiction at an international level and. The ways in which those different cultural traditions lead to a reframing of what psychoanalysis is as such, and it 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 helps us to it helps me, and then I hope it helps the reader as well to dismantle the idea that there is anything as psychoanalysis as such one single thing. There is no one psychoanalysis. There's just diversity of psychoanalytic perspectives. Uh, and, and that's what we can see by looking at it in different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked there's a bit where you talk about, um, I, I think you or someone else is asking a Japanese analyst whether uh, there's something Eurocentric about practicing Freudian psychoanalysis in the, in the Japanese analyst responds, um, asking whether Freud was truly a European. Yes. Yes. Well, this is a very post-colonial question, isn't it? This is a question that is asked by someone who knows more about us <laughs> than we know about ourselves. They, they can see how this is stuff at the edge, that this isn't really part of Western culture, but there's something, uh, something agile, something awry, something different operating within it. And for all of my anxiety, which I do voice in the book, that psychoanalytic discourse is becoming dominant in Western culture and also becoming dominant globally as uh, psychologization 
operates around the world and people are brought into a Western frame of, of thinking about themselves, forced to adapt to a kind of Western model of subjectivity. For all of my anxiety about the prevalence of psychoanalytic discourse, I still think that there's something about psychoanalysis which is at odds with the dominant culture. It gives us space to think in a different way about subjectivity. So that's something that I find valuable in it as well. And as I encounter psychoanalysts in different parts of the world, I'm interested in the ways, not only not only the ways that they reflect their own culture and reproduce cultural assumptions, but I'm interested in the way that they rebel against those cultural norms and open a space for thinking differently about subjectivity. I think that's why psychoanalysis is still, for all of its problems, an emancipatory practice. It opens a space for a different way of thinking about subjectivity that rebels against the way that we're taught to speak and think about ourselves. I suppose, um, I guess this is maybe on the other side of that issue, and I'm not exactly sure how to phrase it, but you, you did, it, it seemed you were, you were saying that in some of your encounters in Brazil and in Latin America, that sometimes the way that leftist ideas, feminist ideas um, enter into the world of psychoanalysis there can still, can sometimes lead to, um, for example, you talk about um, the Lacanian John Alouche and the way in which people will maybe think of themselves as radical or progressive in one way or another, but have nevertheless this kind of identification with a particular psychoanalytic school that maybe isn't as emancipatory as it seems. Yes, and I think this is one of the contradictions between the existence of an institution that is dedicated to a particular practice and a particular theoretical system on the one hand, and a, a, a very rich, diverse tradition of thought that is psychoanalysis in its many, 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 many forms. Uh, once you have an institution dedicated to psychoanalysis, you have a temptation to turn psychoanalysis into a worldview. And, uh, you know, as I remind readers in the book, uh, psychoanalysis is not a worldview, and Freud himself was very clear that it should not be seen as a worldview. Uh, it, 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 yes, it's that contradiction between the institution and the and the the rich variety of the of the theoretical practice that that I want to to open up there. I was just curious in this in this chapter on Brazil, you talk about um, your kind of close collegial relationship with. Um, Chris Dunker. Uh, and you have this um, kind of hilarious opening paragraph where you say, you talk about Erica, your partner, uh, meeting him in the elevator during the 1999 conference of the SIP. He was a tall, slim man with short, dark hair, a Brazilian psychoanalyst who had just attended her talk. Uh, and, he's, and then Chris Dunker uh, goes to his hotel room and tells his wife, I've just met the woman of my life. Um, it, it was a kind of interesting, uh, somewhat steamy um, opening to, to the to the chapter. Uh, what what was going on there? <laughs> uh, well, Chris Dunker has read the manuscript of this book, and I did make some changes uh, before it was published on Chris's advice, uh, as I did 
on the advice of many people, including Bob Young, who, who, who recently died. Bob Young read the book and commented on it. Um, uh, what's going on there? Well, Chris is, is a little bigger now than he was then, and we're very close friends. And I want to get at... how important those personal relationships are in in the way that we work with theory i i i i've got it somewhere somewhere there in the book as we go through the narrative that the institutions and the people that i meet are important to me but those people are important to me not only as ciphers of theoretical debates but those people are important to me as as individuals as 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 sometimes as people that i detest and but but often as people that i really i really respect and admire and love and i suppose i wanted to to bring out something of that personal connection in that little anecdote okay well we are uh, reaching the end of our time here. Um, it's been such a pleasure uh, to speak to you, and I'm so grateful that you've um, given us the time to talk about your book. Um, just before we close, we always ask um, our authors on the podcast, uh, what project are you working on next? Well, I, I mentioned earlier, I've uh, got my book about psychology. Um, there's a little bit of psychology in this book that we've been talking about, but it's only insofar as psychology becomes a dangerous uh, kind of adaptive practice that will distort psychoanalysis. But I, um, I trained as an academic psychologist and I taught in the psychology department for many years. And so that next book uh, published next year is about psychology, it has very little psychoanalysis in it. Uh, the other project that I'm working on uh, is with uh, David Pavon Cuellar in Mexico, uh, which is a book uh, which is Psychoanalysis for Liberation Movements, which was a more uh, accessible text uh, connecting with uh, the, the discussions of subjectivity and transformation that are happening around the world now and trying to... Um, argue that psychoanalysis needs to be taken seriously that's that's the, that's the main project i'm working on at the moment with david great well these both sound um, really fascinating and exciting so thank you so much for joining us ian it's been a real pleasure to speak to you well thanks again jordan